Hello, and welcome back to Eternal Youth. I'm Nicholas Barrett, and in this podcast I'm examining the idea that to understand a person, you have to look at what was happening in the world when they were 20 years old. This week I'm analysing Sigmund Freud at 20 years of age. My way of deciding who I talk about in this podcast is based on whether I think they influence the world today, and Freud's ideas are certainly with us today. Freud remains a divisive figure. A lot of people consider him a genius who revolutionised our understanding of the human mind. A lot of people consider him a charlatan who put theory ahead of facts. In his autobiography, Freud's disciple-turned-rival Carl Jung writes that the only difference between Freud and the Catholic mystics is that Freud replaces the word God with the word sex. I think what Jung is saying here is that Freud's tendency to attribute so many aspects of human behaviour to sexuality became as dogmatic as the religious teachings he had been trying to break away from. This isn't a podcast with a thesis about the veracity of Freud's ideas. But let me tell you how I think about Freud. Let's imagine you're a cartoon character, and you're being chased through a jungle by some enemies. And as you're running, you come to a canyon with a river at the bottom. There are two sides. On one side, there's repression, hysteria, judgment. It's the asylum. And on the other side of the river, there's compassionate talking therapy where people are encouraged to talk about and explore unhappiness and mental illness. Between them is an old and dangerous looking jungle canyon rope bridge. It's imperfect and it's scary, but once you cross it, you're on the other side. I like to think of Freud as that bridge. His ideas aren't safe because they span both sides, with a bit of craziness and a few missing planks along the way. But we're so lucky it's there. And perhaps, once we've crossed it, we can cut the ropes and destroy it, so those old ideas can't hurt us anymore. Or so we think. Freud was born in Pribor, in what is now Czechia. Back then it was called Freiburg, and it was part of the sprawling Austrian Empire which spread out across Central Europe. But by the time he's 20, he's arrived in Vienna, the city where he'll spend most of his life. And it's 1876. The Freud family had moved to Vienna during the city's brief interlude of liberalism. After losing the Austro-Prussian War, the aristocracy had retreated from public life and had been replaced by middle-class professionals, many of them Jewish, who held cabinet positions. Freud's father even had portraits of these Jewish politicians hanging in the family home. In 1867, laws that had locked Jews out of many professions were abolished. Within 15 years, 60% of Vienna's doctors were Jewish. And after another five years, they accounted for over half the city's lawyers, as well as owning and writing for many of the city's major newspapers. In Vienna, the Jews were assimilating, just as the city was embracing modern capitalism, and many were finding success. In fact, in the late 1860s, Jews were becoming prominent in business, politics, the arts, and the universities. Stefan Zweig, the novelist, would later write that nine-tenths of what the world celebrated as Viennese culture in the 19th century was promoted, nourished, or even created by Viennese Jews. So, so what is Vienna like in 1876? It's the capital of an empire, and it's unpleasant. And it's particularly unpleasant for Freud. And to find out why, we have to go back a few years to 1871, where we find friend of the pod Otto von Bismarck up to his old tricks. This time, he's conquered the French in the Franco-Prussian War. And having won the war, he's asked the French for reparations, 5 billion francs. The French say that the best they can do is 1.5 billion, but Bismarck wants 5. And he tells the French that he's not taking his army home until he gets it. To pay off the indemnity, the French borrow heavily, both domestically and internationally. 
This borrowing led to an expansion of credit and speculation in the French financial markets. French banks and investors were highly leveraged, borrowing extensively to finance industrial projects and investments, especially in railways. And on top of that, they have to pay back the debt. This wasn't unique to France, by the way. At this point in history, the whole world is looking to the Industrial Revolution in Britain and racing to catch up. Just imagine you're approached by a man in a moustache, because every man has a moustache in the 1860s, and he says, hey, would you like to earn passive income? I'm building a railway from a town in Bohemia you've never heard of to another town in Bohemia you've never heard of. This is a new age. This is a global industrial revolution. And if you don't invest now, you're going to miss out. So you say, yeah, that is very interesting. The Zug ist die Zukunft. Haber mein Geld, bitte. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly how things happened, but railways really are the hot new investment, and this really is a new age of global capitalism. But railways were becoming the mortgage-backed securities of the late 1860s, not just in Europe, but in America too, where there's a huge boom in construction following the Civil War. In 1873, the financial bubble burst. Everybody has been spending too much money on railways, which weren't returning the kind of profits they had expected. France had been trying to catch up while also sending huge war reparations to Germany. There were other factors too. Two fires, one in Chicago and another in Boston, resulted in widespread damage to property, putting a huge strain on bank reserves. The crisis is now known as the Panic of 1873. And because it's spanning the Atlantic, it's considered to be the first truly global economic crisis. In the USA, average wages fall by a quarter. The stock market in Vienna crashed. Eight banks immediately declared bankruptcy. Forty more went into liquidation. Thousands of investors, large and small, were ruined. Now, in times like this, it's not uncommon for the public to find a scapegoat. For centuries, the Jews had been associated with banking and international finance. It's a stereotype that goes back to medieval times, when usury was considered a sin by Christians. The Old Testament says that it's okay to lend money to people who need it, but that you shouldn't charge interest, not too much anyway. You're not supposed to make money from money. In the New Testament, Jesus famously throws the moneylenders out of the temple in Jerusalem. It's the only time he gets angry. He also warns his followers that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jews, it was believed, faced no such injunction. So Jewish banks were permitted to make a profit from interest. They lent money to governments. And because governments tend to build up the most debt in times of war, a perception emerged that Jews had financed conflict in their own interest. It also fueled an impression that Jews lacked a sense of patriotism and allegiance. The Rothschild family had long been the focus of such suspicions. But by 1873, the Austrian press had honed in on Gerson von Bletchroder. He was German, he was Jewish. As the chief banker for Bismarck and the Prussian state, he was blamed by anti-Semites for the Franco-Prussian War and for the financial crash that followed. Von Bletchroder might be the tabloid villain, but he's not alone. A wave of anti-Semitism sweeps through Vienna, and Freud is on the front line. Here's how he talks about that time in his autobiographical study. Quote, When I first joined the university, I was met with appreciable disappointment. Above all, I found that I was expected to feel myself inferior and an alien because I was a Jew. I refused, absolutely, to do the first of these things. I have never been able to see why I should feel ashamed of my descent, or, as people were beginning to say, of my race. To understand Freud's reaction to anti-Semitism, we need to go back to a story his father, Jacob Freud, tells Sigmund during his childhood. The story goes like this. Quote, when I was a young man, I went for a walk one Saturday in the streets of your birthplace. I was well-dressed. I had a new fur cap on my head. A Christian came up to me 
with a single blow knocked off my cap into the mud and shouted, Jew, get off the pavement. What did you do? asked the young Freud, and his father responds. I went into the roadway and I picked up my cap. Now, Jacob tells Sigmund this story to show his son how much things had improved. But Sigmund is disappointed and completely disillusioned by his dad's reaction. Later, he writes that it struck him as unheroic. He says that when he heard the story, it made him feel the way Hannibal did when he swore to take revenge against the Romans. The economic downturn after the financial crash in Vienna lasts until 1896. That's 27 years. It becomes known as the Long Depression. In America, it's known as the Great Depression until there's another Great Depression. But anti-Semitism would be a theme throughout Freud's life in Austria. Instead of returning to the liberalism of the 1860s, it just gets worse and worse and worse. One day, if I decide to swap the integrity of this podcast for advertising revenue, I might make an episode about the 20-year-old Adolf Hitler and how, in 1909, he was radicalised by anti-Semitic tabloids while he's homeless on the streets of Vienna, and eventually Hitler forces Freud to leave the city forever. But that's another story, and this episode is staying in 1876. What else should we try and understand about Austria at this time? In his biography of Freud, Stefan Zweig describes Europe in the 19th century as a place of repression. He argues that people in cities considered themselves to be on the right side of the Enlightenment. The church and the state no longer sought to govern private behaviour and private morality. People transgressed, but they didn't have the tools to talk about it, and that's partly because talking about sex was considered a kind of betrayal of the Enlightenment, a kind of almost like a return to the state of nature. Here's how Zweig characterises it all. Quote, For almost a century in Europe, the sexual question was kept in quarantine. It was neither denied nor affirmed, neither mooted nor solved, but quietly kept out of sight behind a high wall. A huge army of guardians, functioning as schoolmasters, tutors, clergymen, censors and governesses, were enrolled to ensure that young people should be fenced away from the possibilities of unconstrained bodily pleasure. In 1876, age 20, Freud is studying medicine. But at the University of Vienna, there's no prescribed curriculum, so students could follow their own interests. He does spend some time at a laboratory in Trieste, dissecting eels. He's helping a biologist who's trying to find out if eels have testicles. But he also writes to a friend, saying that he wants to devote his time to purely humanistic studies, which have nothing to do with my later field. He goes on to say that, quote, If anyone asks me, or you on my behalf, what I intend to be, refrain from giving a definite answer and simply say, a scientist, a professor, or something like that, unquote. During the day, he's studying anatomy and looking for eel balls, but at night, he's reading Ludwig Faberbach. In the last episode, I talked about how Nietzsche asked for a copy of The Essence of Christianity by Faberbach for his 17th birthday, and how Faberbach describes God and Christianity as kind of literary creations that humans embraced as a reflection of their own feelings and instincts. Like us, God is kind, angry, forgiving, and vengeful. Man has created God in his own image. Faberbach turns the Bible upside down. Man creates God. He argues that, quote, we should not treat theology as a mystical pragmatology, as in Christian mythology, not as ontology, as in speculative philosophy of religion, but rather as psychic pathology, unquote. In a letter to a friend, Freud says that Faberbach is somebody he reveres and admires above all other philosophers. If you're familiar with Freud, you're probably familiar with the idea of projection a defence mechanism whereby we project our unacceptable or unwanted thoughts, emotions or traits onto someone else. 
If we accuse another person of exhibiting the worst elements of our own behaviour, we can subconsciously distance ourselves from our own anxiety about those behaviours. But this is very close to what Faber-Bach is saying people are doing when they read and believe in the Bible. We're projecting human proclivities onto a mythical character. Freud's intellectual promiscuity has also led him to the lectures of a professor called Franz Brentano. And when Freud falls in love, he really falls in love, describing Brentano as, quote, a remarkable man and a damn clever fellow, a genius in fact, who is in many respects an ideal human being, unquote. So who is this genius? The first thing I want to say about Brentano is that he looks cool. I know that's a superficial observation. In the last episode, I talked about Schopenhauer, who has this huge influence on Nietzsche and on Freud, because he was the first person to describe unconscious desires. But he influenced them through his writing. Schopenhauer kind of looks like Ebenezer Scrooge. And when he gave lectures in Berlin, nobody turned up and eventually he quit teaching. When you look at photos of Brentano, he just looks charismatic, like a well-groomed combination of Jesus Christ and Gregory Rasputin. And I can only really speculate here, but it's not difficult to imagine the allure of his lectures. I read four biographies of Freud for this, and none of them talk about how hot this guy is. But this podcast isn't afraid to go where the historians won't. Anyway, as a medical student, Freud has no obligation to attend these lectures and seminars, but he ends up taking five of Brentano's courses in three years. Unlike Freud, who was at this point calling himself a godless medical man, Brentano was religious. He had even been a priest, but had resigned because he stopped believing in the Pope's infallibility. Brentano's big idea is intentionality. He says that mental phenomena are always directed towards an object, meaning that every mental state is about or intends something. Our consciousness is always, he says, directed towards objects and other people. And that aboutness is fundamental to consciousness itself. Crucially, the objects we think about don't have to exist in reality. Perhaps this sounds obvious, what's the big deal? We think about things, so what? That was my first reaction anyway. But I live in the 21st century where we're used to thinking about thinking. Brentano was talking about the ways our imaginations are orientated and framed by our realities. Our minds are like cameras. When cameras take photos, they are taking photos of the world in front of them. The difference between our minds and a camera is agency. We have some control over what we think about and what we focus on. And that's what Brentano calls intentionality. And in the same way a camera can only take photos of what's in front of, that's what cameras do, they take photos of things, we think about things. That's our relationship to the world. But Brentano is also doing something very significant for Freud. Both men consider themselves empiricists. Both have an irrepressible interest in the humanities. And Brentano is telling his students that in the emerging field of psychology, one can complement the other. To help explain this, I'm going to read a section from Freud, an intellectual biography, by Joel Whitebook. Quote, Freud inherited Brentano's dualistic approach, which held that the scientific study of the psyche required the combination of two perspectives. On the one hand, the third-person external perspective of the natural scientist that approaches the psyche as an object, such as one finds in the study of the physiological basis of neurophysiology, animal and human behavior, child development, mental illness, and so-called primitive mentalities. On the other hand, Brentano used the first-person perspective that examines internal representations from within the psyche, for example, through what Brentano called inner perception. Brentano considered both approaches essential and privileged neither over the other. That the two dimensions are of equal status methodologically is, for the philosopher, the result of an important empirical fact, namely that soma and psyche 
are in constant interaction with one another. In a recommendation that assumed obvious significance for Freud, Brentano suggests that it is especially fruitful to study borderline phenomena, hysteria is a prime example, in order to grasp both sides of their interaction. What I think Whitebrook is saying here is that Brentano married the philosophical and clinical aspects of psychology. At 20, Freud wants to study the humanities and medicine, but he doesn't know what to do with his life. And here's Brentano saying that not only do you not have to choose, but having a foot in both camps is actually a huge advantage because people are influenced by their body in a scientific way and the world in a more kind of imaginative way. Our moods and feelings and health are all connected together and to understand all of them you need to understand ideas and medicine. So Freud grows up in a liberal Vienna, which is disintegrating in front of him. He's part of a Jewish community, but he's kind of on the edge because he's an atheist, and he's part of Viennese society, but he's on the edge of that too because he's constantly encountering the city's rising tide of anti-Semitism. He wants to be an empiricist, but he wants to be a philosopher too. One way of looking at psychoanalysis is an attempted negotiation between these worlds, an attempt to recapture a childhood in that brief interlude of liberalism. Freud doesn't want to spend his life practicing medicine, but he still wants to help people. He can't bring himself to believe in God, but he can't excavate religious texts for clues to understand the human condition. Freud and his generation of secular Jews can't confide with a rabbi the way their parents might have, but the talking cure, and what we now call talking therapy, can come pretty close to that. afraid our time is up. I think we made good progress today and I'm sure we'll touch on some of these themes again in future sessions. Now before I fade away I want to thank my flatmate Barnaby Slater for lending me this microphone to make this podcast. If, unlike me, you're in the middle of the Venn diagram of people with an interest in Freud and Tottenham Hotspur Football Club then you might enjoy his Spurred On podcast. That might sound like a small group, but I'm guessing Tottenham fans have spent a lot of money on therapy over the last three years. I also want to thank Timbar, who generously let me use his music for eternal youth. Luckily for you, dear listener, it gives me an excuse to recommend one of my favourite YouTube channels, where Timbar uploads these extensive and forensic video essays about subjects including Kanye West, mental illness in Adventure Time, as well as explorations of the alternative news media sphere and they really reward your attention. The channel is called Timbar on Toast, and I promise you it's worth your time. And if you're in the UK, he also has a podcast which drills into the details of policy failures in British politics. He recently uploaded a fascinating episode about the state of the country's prison system. So if you think that podcasts about Westminster politics are too concerned with gossip and the ministerial horse race, then try jumping off points. Hopefully, that's more than enough to keep you entertained until my return. And until then, I'll feed us in.